honors Mr. Sikorsky for his design and production of the world's first practical helicopter, for the conception and construction of the first successful four-engine aircraft, and for the design and production of a series of flying boat aircraft that pioneered transocean air transportation. It is with great pleasure that I present the 1967 Wright Brothers Memorial Trophy to the creative and guiding spirit of Sikorsky Aircraft Division of United Aircraft Corporation, Mr. Igor I. Sikorsky. Senator Murphy, Mr. Niels, Mr. Norris, Mr. Jack Horner, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. We are here tonight to honor the memory of two great Americans, two great men who solved a problem which remained an impossible dream, not for decades or centuries, but for millenniums. When the Wright brothers started their work, they faced two formidable obstacles, obstacles which could have stopped a number of men, except the one who had outstanding courage and ability. As a pioneer myself, I could visualize the obstacles, I could visualize their immensity, and I could admire the men who finally conquered the obstacles. The warnings which I mentioned were the following. First, Every attempt that have been made before them, and there has been several attempts made, ended in a failure. And yet some of the men who tried were supposedly and apparently better equipped scientifically and had larger financial backing at their disposal. Yet they started the work. Now the other thing which, so to say, confirmed the first was the following. Most of the scientific authorities of that time, previous to aviation, agreed that mechanical flight of man is and will forever remain impossible. To show what these opinions were, I would dare to quote the following excerpt from one of the newspapers, which has been printed not even before, but after the Wright brothers have completed their flight. I remember it pretty accurately, although you can read the statement in the excellent book of Fred Kelly about the Wright brothers, the book, by the way, which has been endorsed by Orville Wright. Now, they accept it as follows. When a scientist, uh, a competent scientist, would prove with indisputable logic that human mechanical flight is and will remain forever impossible, why should the public be fooled by silly stories of some obscure bicycle repairman who hasn't even been to college? <laughs> now, this was a statement made after they flew, and you can imagine what statement have been one made before, and yet the Wright brothers realized the immensity of the problem in face of them, and the definite risk of failure. 
I have witnessed sad failures, and I know that the failures are real tragedies just as much as crashes. Now, why is it that the Wright brothers um, succeeded where everybody else has failed? I would say, strange as this may sound, that their approach was remarkable in their scientific and engineering common sense uh, truthfulness and reliability. To say the first, they realized that building a successful flying machine is only part of the thing. Learning how to fly it is the other part. Hence, <laughs> therefore, the extremely correct approach by way of gliders. Now, more than that, glider calls for very special conditions of terrain and weather. And so the Wright brothers studied this condition, got information from proper uh, sources in Washington, contacted the actual people in place, got a very complete letter, friendly letter and fine letter explaining the condition from Captain Tate, who was, I believe, the postmaster and Kitty Hawk at that time and also in charge of the lighthouse uh, over there, who described the conditions. And they found it, and undoubtedly to my mind, Kitty Hawk was a part of their success. Maybe they wouldn't have succeeded. They wouldn't select it a spot difficult to reach with its powerful, gentle hills with reasonably strong, uniform winds nearly every day. I have been them a multitude of times, and I observed it. And just as many of us may have admired the so-called natural bridge in Virginia, so I would dare to give the name to Kitty Hawk as the natural wind tunnel, because that's what it is. I felt it. <laughs> felt it with my own face time and time again. Well, here is this wonderful uniform wind condition and beautiful hills which permitted them to, to have best condition to study, to learn themselves to fly which they did. Now next, when the actual mechanical flight approached, another thing took place. Instead of trying to reach rapidly success, trying to get some publicity with success, we see them steadily working, perfectly and accurately recognizing the difficulties of the problem and trying to eliminate it and aiming at one spot, like a good general tries to uh, cross and to smash the enemy at least in one spot, and then develop it further. So they attacked the enemy of the unknown, trying to build a flying machine which will fly and postponing everything else toward the last, even at the cost of compromises. Now hence, for instance, they put the pilot in a prone position, leaning down. Well, obviously impossible. Pilot must sit. But no, they put it lying. Less resistance, quicker to success. Now, uh, other things. Every aeroplane must have wheels. The Wright brothers left wheels on the ground to gain weight and drive. Now, of course, the sandy fields there were another subject, but still gaining weight and drag in the new young machine, underpowered machine. They left the wheels on the ground. Now, another thing. Every practical engineer knows that you can cross a belt, but you should not cross a chain. That's wrong to cross a chain. 
and the bicycle man, brother Wright, knew it better than anyone else. They crossed the chain and made a mechanical flight by man by years earlier than anyone else. Hence, they started the pioneering period of flying. America can be proud that the pioneering period which they started, at least in my judgment, was completed and closed by another great American, Charles Lindbergh, and his wonderful flight of May 21, 27, when he took off from New York and landed not merely in Paris, but in a definite spot, Le Bourget Airport. This flight of one man in a relatively inexpensive aeroplane, all alone, with no preparation whatsoever underway, produced a tremendous impression all over the world. And in America, where the boost and impact on the development of aviation made by this flight was tremendous. Now, I had a to chance to talk with Charles on this subject, and I asked it, why, how would you go all alone? Now, his was his explanation. He wanted it, wanted to go alone, not with someone. Now, what he explained was this. He said that when I go along, I risk my life, not somebody else's. And with my life, I am, I am the master of it. I can do anything what I want. Furthermore, on their way, I may find difficulties, may find questions to solve. If I am alone, I am going to solve it. If there is another man I want to consult with him, I don't want to risk his life. I can risk mine. I don't want somebody else's. I want to be in total control of the situation. My discussion with Charles was over a quarter of a century ago, but I remember it very well. Maybe the wording was different, but the meaning is correct. The man wanted complete freedom of decision and action. He took it. He took a risk with his own life. But he won, and he made a tremendous push to aviation. In connection with this, I would like to state the following. Here we see two cases where the individual initiative, individual work, and the total freedom to use both, work it to the best, resulted in a brilliant success and a victory. And I believe that this is something which makes America strong, something which I hope we will stick to it. Because even now, I was asked at some time whether at the present time all this individual work is more or less over and the only way to do is by enormous organized masses of men disciplined and working for a scientific problem or other. No doubt such things as space travel or nuclear injury could not have been otherwise. But, Outside of that, there is still a wide field left for the initiative of an individual man. And therefore, it is my firm conviction, approaching the end of my life and having seen something and having worked myself, that still nothing can replace the free work of free man. That's where the real progress is being started. Once done, it must be expanded. In the process of expansion, of mass production and so forth, why obviously organization and so forth are entering the picture. But still for starting, the man is the greatest thing and element which can do it. And the man, in order to do it and do it right, must have freedom. Freedom of initiative, 
freedom of work, freedom to start something. Now, I think I would have to uh, protect you, ladies and gentlemen, from a danger of having invited an old timer who is liable to start a long, non-stop talk, which would be a bore. So I'll try to make it short. First of all, I would like to express my deep and most sincere gratitude for the great honor which I am most happy to humbly accept. In accepting it, I must say that whatever success has been reached, I owe it to several more. First of all, and most of all, to the three following groups which I would like to mention. First, United Aircraft, whose leadership, engineering, and financial support made this work possible. Next, to all my associates in the division, again, whose management, engineering, and factory workers, all of them, every one of them, uh, made it possible to transform a dream into a reality. With respect to the third group, I would like to take a little more time, although not too much. With respect to this group, I would say the following. We all read in our youth, and perhaps remember even now, the beautiful stories about the wooden ships manned by Iron Man. That is true. Now the wooden clipper ships, the beautiful ships of the oceans, are almost disappeared. We don't have them anymore. But fortunately for us, the Iron Men are still right here. The Iron Men of today are behind the controls, no longer of wooden, but mostly of dual aluminum ships of the air. And it is the Iron Man, the Air Man of our armed forces and private organization to whom I would like to express now also my deepest gratitude for their work, for their skill, abilities, and courage. We, the designers and the builders of airplanes, would be building something useless and worthless if it wouldn't be for the skill and courage of our airmen, for our airmen of the armed forces and the private pilots who made exploits that could fill not merely a volume but could fill libraries of all these exploits which I hope and I know of course are being recorded and would be just as fascinating to read as any brilliant human exploits. I would like to mention briefly just one which is particularly valuable and particularly dear to me which is, which to my mind, forms one of the most glorious pages of human flight. It is the story of air rescue by airplanes and lately by helicopters. And what concerns the helicopters, to my information, and I made a reasonably accurate study, the number of lives that have been saved is considerably above 100,000. It is probably reaching, possibly already exceeding 200,000 lives. Now, this is the result, not merely of the ships, but mostly and mainly of the skill, ability, and courage of our flying men, all of them. And therefore, to this flying man, in completing my address, I would like to express this time my thankfulness and friendship my deepest respect and admiration. And I thank you all.
Ladies and gentlemen, it is seldom, it is seldom that you find a man who has achieved as much as our honored guest, who combines one of the nicest, warmest personalities it's ever been my good fortune to witness. Now, everybody that wanted to be here couldn't be here. And I have a telegram from a wonderful man. He says, would you please express my best wishes to the president, the members, and the guests of the Aero Club of Washington at your annual Wright Brothers Memorial Dinner. It is specially fitting that the Wright Brothers Memorial Trophy be awarded to one of the true great pioneers of flight, Igor Sikorsky. It is even more fitting that the award be granted in a year which has given us and daily gives us proof of the remarkable and important contribution the helicopter has made to our national welfare in both civil and military aspects. My heartiest congratulations to Mr. Sikorsky and my special congratulations to the Trophy Selection Committee for having the extreme great wisdom in selecting him for this coveted honor. It's signed Hubert H. Humphrey, Vice President of the United States. And now, honored guests and ladies and gentlemen, in closing my particular privilege of the evening, I would like to say that in our daily lives, we deal with all sorts of problems, matters of great concern. Sometimes it seems that confusion is about to overcome all of us, great divergence of opinion as to how things should be accomplished, doomsday criers in every corner, problems insurmountable, we're never going to be able to get it all worked out. Don't you believe it. Don't you believe it for one minute. As long as we have men like Igor Sikorsky and many others in this room, men of imagination and determination, and as Mr. Sikorsky has so well said, free men, free to imagine, free to achieve, free to apply their knowledge, and free to accomplish. There are no limits to what we can do in this great nation of ours. No barriers that we cannot surmount. There are no problems in this poor, troubled world of ours that if we try hard enough, long enough, we won't be able to find the answers. I thank you, Mr. Sikorsky. I would like to say to Mr. Sikorsky and to all present, in the wonderful 65 years that I've been around, I can think of no night, no evening, that has given me more pleasure or greater honor to be present than this tonight. I thank you all very much. May God bless you.